Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. We're going to teach about Jesus now. So we're in this sermon series called The Way. This is the very last week of The Way. We're done. Um, we've done it. We did it. Uh, not totally. We're going to come back next year when we get close to Easter. But for today, uh, what we're going to do is pick up the story. Jesus and his crew are leaving Samaria. They are about to enter Jerusalem. Jesus is, uh, within a week of the story we read today, he will be killed. And so we've been tracking him down this map And we're finally at the bottom. We started at the top by the Sea of Galilee. We're down by the bottom now. Jesus is about to make his triumphant, triumphal entry as the King of Kings. So there's one more story for us to hear before he jumps into that. So Luke chapter 19, verse 11, read with me. It says, while he, Jesus, had their attention, and because they were getting close to Jerusalem by this time, an expectation was building that God's kingdom would appear any minute, he told this story. There was once a man descended from a royal house who needed to make a long trip back to headquarters to get authorization for his rule and then return. But first he called 10 servants together. He gave them each a sum of money and instructed them, operate with this until I return. But the citizens, those citizens there, they hated him. So they sent a commission with a signed petition to oppose his rule, quote, we don't want this man to rule us, nevertheless. When he came back bringing the authorization of his rule, he called those 10 servants to whom he had given money to find out how they had done. The first said, Master, I doubled your money. He said, Good servant, great work. Because you've been trustworthy in this small job, I'm making you governor of 10 towns. And the second said, Master, I made 50% profit on your money. And he said, I'm putting you in charge of five towns. And the next servant said, Master, here's your money, safe and sound. I kept it hidden in the cellar. To tell you the truth, I was a little afraid. I I know you have high standards and you hate sloppiness and, and you don't suffer fools gladly. He said, you're right. I don't suffer fools gladly. And you've acted the fool. Why didn't you at least invest the money in securities? I would have gotten a little interest on it. And then he said to those standing there, take the money from him and give it to the servant who doubled my stake. And they said, but master, he already has double. And Jesus said, that's what I mean. Risk your life and get more than you ever dreamed of. Play it safe and end up holding the bag. As for these enemies of mine who petitioned against my rule, clear them out of here. I don't want to see their faces around here again. Whoa. So Jesus is telling his kind of last story before he enters into Jerusalem, and it's this story. I mean, hello, about a royal who's coming to establish his rule. Jesus is telling his own story and explaining that he's not going to be around for a while. He came from heaven to establish God's kingdom. He's going to leave the people and he will one day return and he's giving them instructions. In the meantime, there's something for you to do. We can't lose the fact that the citizens said, we don't want this man to rule us. Citizens, upon learning that this was going to be their new ruler, their response was, we don't want this man to rule us. Eugene Peterson's book, Tell It Slant, is uh, the reason we started this series. To be honest, I read this book a couple years ago and I went, wow. So much richness in this, this part of the scripture. And in that book, he, he 
even sets out this kind of idea that as Jesus is telling this story, the next day, Jesus is going to head to Jerusalem, which is a 17-mile ascent of 3,300 feet. That's what's tomorrow for Jesus. The next day is Palm Sunday, where he descends the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem to a cheering crowd. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They call him the king. Rides in on the back of a donkey. They put palm in front of him. Four more times in the next couple of days after that, he will be called king. Twice it is trial with Pontius Pilate, and twice when he is on the cross. Five times in Jesus' last week of life, he's referred to as the king once in praising acceptance, and then the final four in murderous rejection. The verdict was really clear, Peterson says. As people gathered around Jesus, the verdict was clear. We don't want this man to rule us. So let's consider something. Since the dawn of humanity and every act of our great cosmic play, we have all been those citizens. We don't want this man to rule us. We construct our lives in ways to try to find something else to be our God, to try to find some idol to distract us from Jesus. It started in Genesis, Genesis Chapter 3, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve and Adam taking the forbidden fruit, what was it about? It was so they could be like God. The promise of the snake in the garden was you can rule yourself. You don't need God. And that continues today. John Calvin famously said the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us from his mother's womb is an expert in inventing idols. We create things to avoid the rule of God. We create things to distract us from his kingship in our lives. I did a little uh, thought exercise ago. I went through the last hundred years. I was a history student in college and something I kind of try to keep up, have some sense of it. I went through the last hundred years, just decade by decade, and I said, what defined the decade? So go to the 1910s. The 1910s were defined by opening opportunities. Like, the Industrial Revolution had really taken at that point. And and pre-1910, pre-1890, you know, pre-Industrial Revolution, humans thought about food all the time. That's all you could think about, because you had to grow your own food, then you had to store your food, and then you had to eat the food, so you had enough energy to grow more food. And then the Industrial Revolution meant people could grow food, like, in mass. And so by the 1910s, everyone had an opportunity to do new things. Inventions started to come up out of nowhere because people had spare time. Mechanics were growing. Opportunity was our idol in the 1910s. 1920s, the roaring 20s was a time of great prosperity in the world. Money, post-World War I, money became an idol as, as food was taken care of. I can go and chase something greater. 1930s was a whole decade about escape. Hollywood showed up in the 30s. The rise of radio and film became a thing. People coming out of the Depression needed some escape from the hardship of life, and so Hollywood showed up. Distraction became our idol in the 40s. It was patriotism. It's a decade of war. And so country became the idol. In the 50s, democracy and dollars took over. It was the boom, the baby boom. Suburbs started to to be formed all around the country, and people had freedom, financial freedom, as the boom happened, the post-war boom of the victor, and freedom of movement, as you could live where you wanted because the car and the highway and the suburb allowed it. In the 60s, we had an anti-boom decade, the countercultural decade, the civil rights decade. In the 60s, your cause was your idol. Everybody found a cause, and that became your thing. 
Tom Wolfe wrote that the 1970s he defined as the me decade is the decade of self. Self was the idol. How else would you explain bell-bottoms? You'll get that. The 1980s was the new sort of thing happening. The 1980s was the rise of consumer culture. Because what else can defeat communism but empty store shelves in Russia and full store shelves in America? And so stuff became our idol as people had more time and more money and what do we do with it? And Wall Street was everything. Stuff was our idol. In the 90s, doesn't seem like that long ago, it's forever ago. The 1990s was the time of new media. We became information consumers. Cable became normal. And then the internet showed up at the end of the decade. At the beginning of the decade, you got to choose which news channel you wanted to watch. At the end of the decade, the internet started to open up to everybody. The dot-com boom happened, and information became our idol. In the 2000s, it becomes this whole decade of what I will call scrolling attention. The decade is ushered in by 9-11, and people begin to choose their storylines as this information is more and more readily available then comes the smartphone and social media, and by the time we get to the end, we realize that the early 2000s were the time that preference became our idol, that my preference is what matters. The decade we just left, the 2010s, is identified and defined by opposition. If Tom Wolfe called the 70s the me decade, I would call the 2010s the them decade. We defined ourselves by not who we are, but what we opposed. And the cause of our opponents and defeating it became the idol. And we have seen a more divided world than ever before, more divided country than ever before. And it's really the last 10 years as the 2000s took hold and our preferences became our God. Then in the 2010s, we went, well, why aren't my preferences won by everybody? And each decade has its own series of technological shifts and cultural changes and, and our context changes. But we keep creating new idols. We keep diving into new things. And they're all just distractions. And all of them are attempt to rule self, to define what I'm about, what I live for. If we're not careful, we get swept up in the culture because at least it lets us hold on to the perception of control. And yet in story after story, Jesus lay, uh, he lays out what it means to really follow him, what it means to, to run counterculturally, what it means to swim upstream, to call him king. Jesus says you have to be willing to lose everything. You have to be willing to give up everything, to lay down everything, to give up self-rule, to give up your right to get swept up in the new thing. And so we have to submit to the rule of Jesus, and that can be so hard. The thing I love about Jesus this last uh, few months of, of just sitting in his stories, he's such an incredible storyteller. His stories compel us, and then when we read them again, we start to see ourselves in them, and his stories begin to form us, and we start to see how they're shaping our direction and shaping our lives. They remind us why we're here. Most often, I think our stories are not about what we do, it's about who we are. The stories of Christ are not so much trying to change your behavior, although if you follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit will radically alter your behavior. He's not here to just reform your habits. He's not here to make you a better person, reform your habits. Although, if you follow Jesus, you can expect radical reformation. A quote that's been said so many times, I don't actually know it, where it comes from, but I've seen a thousand preachers use it. I've used it before. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. The point of every story of Jesus is not to make bad people good or make mediocre people better. It's to make dead people alive. It's to awaken the thing he built you for. 
So Jesus tells this story about a royal man on a long trip to authorize his kingdom, which is a really nice way of describing the cross that he would endure. He's days away from enduring unspeakable death as the first step to offering you and I unimaginable life. And so he says, I'm going to be away for a while. The, the royal is going to be away for a while. And, and who will you be while he's gone? And, and it's who, what will you do language, but it's who will you be is the real question. So the scripture says he called the 10 servants together and he gave them each a sum of money and instructed them to operate with this until I return. So what is the sum of money he's left us? If we're the servants in the story and, and Jesus has risen and we are left to do something, to be someone, what is that sum of money for us? What has he deposited in your account? I would say it is grace and giftedness. God has deposited grace and giftedness in your account. He has deposited endless grace, right? Your sins are no more. Your record is wiped clean. You have salvation that you didn't earn. That's grace. Gifts unearned. More than that, you have giftedness. You have been given gifts and talents. If you're hospitable, that is a gift. If you have musical ability, that is a gift. If you have a way with children or a heart of prayer, that's a gift. You have the ability to teach or you're an evangelist or you're an encourager. These are the gifts of God in your life. So the sum of what we've been given as the servants of the king is grace and giftedness. Jesus says we're going to be reunited soon enough. He's coming back. Either he's going to come down or we're going to go up one way or the other. We're, the reuniting is happening soon. So what will we have to show for the time between his resurrection and our reuniting? First thing we can see is what not to do. There's, there's the fool's bargain in the story. What did the fool do? Got a little bit afraid, hid the money in the cellar. This is interesting because this is, most of us go, well, I wouldn't do that. I would argue that most of us do that, actually. I'm going to ask you a question. Honest answers. Gift cards. We're talking about gift cards at the moment. Gift cards, stores, gift cards. How many of you have a gift card at home that has unspent money on it? Just by show of hands online, just click a thumbs up. Show of hands. I got a gift card that's got some money on it somewhere. Yeah. Recent study said more than half of Americans have unused gift cards in their home. And the best estimate we have is that there are 21 billion dollars of gift cards sitting in people's drawers and cabinets at home. I'm going to come to this in a minute. That's going to make sense, I promise. <laughs> we can agree that gift cards unspent are wasted money, right? If, if you get a gift card, I buy you a gift card, and you don't spend it, that's wasted money. The saving grace of that is I'll never know. If I give you a gift card and you never spend it, I got the gratification of giving you the gift, and I don't have to know that you actually wasted it. That would be a real bummer if you knew that all your best gifts had been ignored, right? Well, one year I got to feel it. Cue the slide. Boom. Okay. For Christmas one year, I got this really bright idea. My wife and I gave everybody we loved money to one of these micro-lending sites. Kiva is one of them. What they do is they, you give them $100. You, you get to pick then from thousands of people around the world a uh, somebody repairing soccer shoes in Guatemala, somebody selling mangoes in, in Zambia. You, you get to choose somebody, some entrepreneur somewhere around the world that doesn't have access to capital, and you get to help them get their business off the ground. They then pay the money back, and you get to give it again. 
And so it's this incredible little series of micro loans that go out. So you give $40, $80, $120. Somebody needs $120. And it is a life-changing amount of money. It gets their business off the ground and their family out of poverty. And then someone goes to school and the whole world changes. We thought, what an incredible idea. Let's give gift cards so people get to go in, experience the joy of getting to do this for others. And then when that money gets paid back, because 97% of those loans get paid back, They'll have the money, and they can withdraw it. I don't care. They can take the cash and go out to dinner, or they can put it right back into the system, and the thing can just keep helping people. What a great idea. Kiva was really good about this. They, uh, they gave me a giver's dashboard, which allowed me to see where all of the people I gave gifts to were going to give their gifts. That was a mistake. Months passed. February, March, you know the names of months. April We got to late April, early May, and I was like, look, forget it. Nobody spent it. Nobody cared. Nobody was interested. Wasted. So we actually were able to go in, click on the gift card, take it back, and deploy the money. I wasn't worried that they were going to be offended because they'd never looked in the first place. And they're watching. Sorry. Now you know. I lost my password. Sure, sure, we got it. So I did, I did, just like the story, I took the money back from the people who didn't use it and I gave it away. So it might be used and deployed in a real and a profound way. God's gifts are intended to be our gifts to the world. God's gifts to us are intended to be our gifts to the world. God gives you a gift so that you might give it to the world. Not so you can put it in a drawer he gives you a gift that you might use it and the world might be blessed. God has given you a gift card. It is topped off with grace and giftedness beyond measure. And all he asks is that you spend it. That's all he wants. I've given you gifts and talents, each one of us different and unique, and all I want you to do is spend the gift. Put your gifts in play, invest it, reinvest it. Imagine these days, everybody, pandemics cause, you know, everybody's got Amazon boxes on their porch. Everybody's learned how to order stuff online. Imagine those days, we had those days. We were those people in the neighborhood that had like 12 boxes on the front porch. And I have a problem. But um, we would have all the boxes on the, on the porch and be like, there's your toilet paper. They had some. There's your paper towels. And then oh, food, sure, we'll order that too. Like, and this stuff would just pile up on the front porch. And once a day, you just sweep in all the things you needed for the week. Can you imagine ordering things off Amazon, ordering things from the internet, getting your groceries delivered, whatever it is, and they sit on the front porch, and you look out the window, and you see them there, and you just smile and walk away. And season after season, these boxes just rot on your front porch. Like, nobody would think to do that. When you have something on your porch, you bring it in. You open it up, and you deploy it for the reason you purchased it. God has purchased things for you. He is getting gifts shipped to your house. And all he wants you to do is open the front door, grab the box, open it, and deploy it. An unused gift grieves the giver. I was grieved. I was a little spicy about that. And I was not real happy. It is my fault. Nobody likes when you give their gift to someone else. It's, it's not a real popular gift. The human fund, it's for you. Nobody likes that. And yet the unused gift grieves me. It's just waste. So what does the inverse of this look like? What does it look like when people do it right? 
What does it look like when somebody gets the gifts God has given them and they deploy them? I didn't ask permission, but I'm going uh, to use two people in the church. Uh, can you throw Sam and Megan up there? Look at that. Where are you guys sitting? Are they around here? I can't find them. They're in here. There they are. They're, they're waving at us. Sam is here. Megan will be here later. Or now she'll see this and she will not come. <laughs> Maybe. Pull this off their Facebook. So they posted this, so it must be good. Um, they're adorable and wonderful. Uh, that's their dog before their dog got bigger. Their dog is wonderful. Um, Sam works for the Wood County Sheriff's Office. Megan works for Otsego Elementary School. They're incredible people, living out their giftedness. First in their jobs, they are wired for what they do. To get to know them is to see Sam is like the steadiest force I've ever met. He's faithful, he's on time, he's ready, he's prepared, he is steady. Who else do you want in law enforcement? You want Sam. Megan is one of the most encouraging, compassionate, kind-hearted people I've ever met. She's teaching elementary school kids and training them up in how to be more like Megan, we hope. They're using their gifts in their jobs in incredible ways. They're changing lives. They're transforming eternities in little moments and bits. And then they come to church. Sam worked third shift last night. Sam played guitar this morning. If you want to offer Sam a cup of coffee, he will not turn it down. <laughs> Sam volunteered to come after his third shift in the sheriff's office to come and then do a six-hour shift at the church, leading you in worship. Because it's his gift. He's incredible at it. He's good on acoustic guitar. He's good on electric guitar. He's great. And on Sundays, he's not leading worship. You're going to see him walking around and just meandering around the church because he's also on our security team. And some of you are like, I didn't even know we had a security team. And we go, that's the point. If it's working, you'll never know about it. But who else would you want to use the gift of all his things that make him great at law enforcement to be on your security team? He sees everything. He has, he has like trained for days to do this stuff. So when I see him on the security team, I go, yes, it's a Sam day. He's got this. And you know how long of a shift that is, volunteer shift? That's a five-hour shift too. But Sam uses his gifts. He deploys his gifts in beautiful ways. Megan is part of our, the leadership team of our Covenant Student Ministry because she cares about these fourth graders, fifth graders. As she's taking them through elementary school, then she picks them up in church in sixth grade. And when we went into a pandemic, she said, that's okay, I'll Zoom with them. Everybody hated Zoom. <laughs> and she was like, I don't care how horrible it is. I will sit and I will Zoom every single week with as many kids as I can get a hold of. And when kids started dropping off because everybody hated Zoom, she started writing cards. As a parent of a sixth grader, it meant a lot when your sixth grader who hasn't seen a friend in six months gets a card from their leader at Covenant Students. She's using those gifts of compassion and kindness and encouragement. She's deploying them in the kingdom in radical ways. And I didn't ask their permission because they probably wouldn't have let me talk about them. Because humility doesn't want recognition. The people who give the most money to the most things, you probably will never know. People who serve the most, you go, really? I don't think I've ever seen him on that or serving that. Yeah, I know. Doesn't make a big deal. Humility doesn't want recognition, just wants their lives to go to what really matters. To be up on a day off extra early, to be sending one more text to a student in need. 
There's multiple people, Megan and Sam moved into our neighborhood recently. There's multiple people I've checked in on recently. Husband's out of town or had a hard week or these kind of things. Multiple people I've checked in on recently who said, I'm doing great today. I, I went on a walk with Megan. Did you know that going on a walk with a friend might be you deploying your gifts in a radical way? You being available to somebody else who's having a tough day could be everything for somebody. People are using God's gifts in every aspect of life. I have two daughters. It's Father's Day, so I get to talk about my kids. Last night, we were at another church uh, that recently planted in Millbury. Some friends planted a church, and we wanted to support them. So uh, my wife led worship, and my 12-year-old plays violin, so she was playing violin on the worship team. A couple of covenant folks decided to give up their night and go out there too, and we made a worship band for a church for whom the pastor is the worship leader, and that's exhausting, and I don't even do both. So they went up and did that. So my 12-year-old is on the violin leading a church plant in worship, and after that we left, and then my nine-year-old got hired to be a dog sitter because she loves animals, because she takes this 70-pound Rhodesian Ridgeback on long walks around the bird streets for six or seven days while a family's on vacation, and they entrust the dog to her because she is trustworthy with dogs. She's using her gifts, these little tiny person talents, and the 12-year-old using her gifts. It doesn't matter if you're going to be the preacher, the greeter, the coffee person, the acoustic worship player. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you recognize that God has given you gifts and that you might deploy them. Because we have a king. And the king has said, I'm leaving and I'm giving you gifts. Grace and giftedness, please use them. He just wants us to play a part in the story that he's telling. You are part of God's redemption story. You have to hear that so often. You are part of God's redemption story. He is using you in his redemption of this place. Your grace and your giftedness is going to be someone's invitation into his story. And it might be the first time they've ever heard it or felt that. It might be the last time. You might push them across the finish line into eternity. I don't know. Your giftedness is someone's invitation into God's grace. So today, to close, I have a simple challenge. This is going to be active, participatory, and everyone gets to do it. You're so glad. In the room, we have these cards. Online, you got a button that says connect. These cards, I'd like everybody to grab a card. Front row doesn't have a card, so you're going to have to scramble. Good luck. Here's what you're going to do. Get the card, grab a pin. Every single person gets to do this. If you just write your name and happy Father's Day, that will bless me. So that at the very least, you're writing that, okay? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to call this our gift card today. And you don't want your gift card to go unused. So as you write your name, and if you really trust us, a phone number and an email, and if you're new, if you're like, you know what, I'm not going to fill that out because this is like my second time here, and now it's getting weird, you can write a fake name at the bottom, draw me a picture of like a horse or something, I don't know, whatever you want to do, take your time. If you're part of this body, I'm going to invite you to, to write one word in the bottom section, there's these lines here, so you need your name at the top and write one word at the bottom. If you are serving... You're using God's grace and gift in your life. Does he mean only in church? No. Church is a great place to find ways to find your gifts. So that's cool. But the question is, 
are you using your grace and your giftedness? If the answer is yes, yeah, I'm deployed in this ministry area or I'm serving in this other way or I'm taking care of my elderly parents or I'm, whatever that is, and you're going, that is my gift. I know it and I feel it when I use it. All you need to write in that box at the bottom is in, I in, I'm in. And if you write that, you go, why would I need to write that, write my name, put this in? Because that is an encouragement to me. So thank you for encouraging me today. If you are already doing it, write in. If you want to figure out what it means to use your giftedness, if you go, you know what, I'm not sure I've ever felt that feeling of being fully alive and doing what God created me to do. So maybe there's a role in the church I can do on a Sunday morning, or maybe there's a nonprofit that could use my wisdom on their board, or maybe there's someone in town that just needs a meal every so often. Maybe your gift is cooking. I don't know. At the bottom, you would just write, ready, like I'm ready to figure out what that is for me. If you're new here and you didn't already draw a horse and you go, you know what, I'm not totally sure I'm into this place. I'm not totally sure I get this yet. I'm not totally sure this is going to be my church, but I'm open to it. Just write new. We're going to give you a minute. Maybe you need to think about it. We're going to play some overly dramatic music. <laughs> Hit the music. And while that plays, if you're hospitality, kids, if you want to write what your gift is at the bottom, hospitality. This is intense, y'all. Maybe you're administrative. Write that. Maybe you love dogs. Maybe you just draw a dog. Did you write something? Because the music compels you. The hand claps represent your heartbeat. I don't know if that's true. Take your time. The sooner you're done, the sooner the music goes away. <laughs> the soundboard feels like we did it. <laughs> We're laughing. I want this to be fun because using God's gifts, using his great deposit of grace and giftedness in your life should be a joy. And when you watch Liz lead worship, I thank her for leading worship and she thanks me for asking her to lead worship. And I don't get it because I can't lead worship. So I'm like, no, what an incredible burden. And she's like, well, yeah, it's time and energy and effort but you lead worship like Liz and you go, oh, she was made for that. This is what she was created to do. This is one slice of God's giftedness in her life. And so when she does it, you and I get to feel the presence of God in the room because that was what she was created to do in that moment. So the joy we want to have today, the, the reason I want you to fill this out, the reason we want to take all those cards and at the end of the service, you throw them in either of those black boxes. You got to go out one of those doors. I guess you could, you could tunnel out if you want to avoid it. Throw it in the box, no matter what it says. We'll collect them all, and if you have ready on there, in the next week or so, we're going to get some people around that know how to connect you, not just to church stuff. This is not about filling up church volunteer roles. This is about fulfilling God's calling on your life, and so whatever that looks like, we want to have the conversation that helps you figure out how to use God's giftedness in your life in a real and tangible way. 
for your flourishing. So as you go today, at the end of the service, throw those in those black boxes, and we are blessed that you would even consider joining in with God's story in your life. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.